Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Bill, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Yeah, my name is Bill Shikurdi. Uh, I am retired after 20 years as the Vice President for Business and Finance at The Ohio State University. I was also a student there during the 60s and the author of two books about OSU in the 60s, one called uh, Ohio State University in the 60s, The Undoing of the Old Order, and the second one was OSU Student Life in the 60s. So I was very much a participant, now a recounter of that fascinating period. Can you take me through some of what got you interested in looking into OSU, besides being obviously a native of OSU? Um, I'm just more interested in the 60s aspect of things. It was that kind of counterculture revolution, I would say, or movement that was sparking up even towards the 70s as well, too, with anti-Vietnam. Uh, a lot of these issues that were going on, I guess my generation and probably younger generations hear about in history class, but never get the full detail of exactly what was going on. Sure. Well, first of all, having lived through it, it was a fascinating time to be alive. And in the first half of the 60s, if you were a college student, you were kind of um, regarded as very special. You know, you had the whole world open to you. By the late 60s, you know, the tensions grew and, and I was on campus in the spring of 1968. We'll talk about that later, but that was a very difficult period. And I remember back then we didn't have cable TV. So the way you, and you didn't have the internet, the way you got news bulletins usually was if you were watching TV is we interrupt this broadcast to bring you a special bulletin. And every time we'd hear that, you kind of cringe. And think about the special bulletins, the war in Vietnam, the assassination of Martin Luther King, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, all kinds of stuff. So it was both the best of times and the worst of times. The other thing I think that's fascinating about OSU, there's a, a guy that wrote a book about the 10 biggest states in the United States in the early 1970s. And his description of Ohio was the middle-class society. It was kind of in the middle of everything. It was a swing state and really represented the middle class as opposed to what was out on the, the coast. And the changes that occurred in Ohio among Ohio State students, those middle class students who came from, you know, the suburbs and cities and small towns, with the dramatic changes that affected them that rippled through the 70s and 80s, I found just fascinating. So uh, recounting all that, I, I really enjoyed. So when it comes to what was going on at the college campuses, like we don't have to go straight into Vietnam or anything, any of the big subjects, but I mean, the importance of the of obviously the younger generation as well, too. I mean, we were talking a little bit about uh, JFK in the beginning when he was being elected. I mean, he was going against Nixon. And what Kennedy was saying, like I'm listening to it, I'm like, it sounds normal. But for the time period, it's kind of revolutionary. Some of the things he was saying in some aspects when it talks about like, I mean, mentioned space being the new science. And we need to worry about space when at the time it was like peak height of communism, Cold War, hide under your desk, bombs are kind of fallen aspect of things, which to me is interesting. And then listening to Nixon, Nixon kind of copied or i wouldn't say copied but talked a lot about like nothing sounded new compared to everyone's hard on communism attitude which i feel like is what you really needed to get elected back then there was a large fear of communism oh absolutely and i i was uh, 14 at the time john kennedy got the presidential nomination and i remember listening to his speeches particularly his inaugural speech but also the campaign ones and I felt that he was someone that was speaking to me. I never, in, in, in my young life, had a politician that was that articulate, that inspirational. And I, I really, really bought into him when he was assassinated. And I think a lot of baby boomers feel that way. Felt we really lost something. And the country was never quite the same afterwards. 
So when it comes to how the perception, I guess, of other students as well, too, I mean, was Kennedy something that every student really attached to, or was it just something that was, I would say, you individually? I mean, you got something out of it, but was everybody getting that? You told me in the beginning, you, Nixon seemed like it was more of a swing for a lot of these college kids. Well, this is a uh, this is interesting. It's important to remember that OSU was fairly typical of the country, but fairly middle class, which means somewhat conservative, not radically so. Um, there was a poll that the Big Ten did of college students in the Big Ten on the Nixon-Kennedy election race, which everyone knew was going to be close. And I was surprised when I saw the results of that because Nixon carried the OSU, the students that voted in that poll, carried them very heavily. And I asked myself, why Ohio, Nixon won Ohio narrowly, but he did win the state. Um, and part of it was there's, there's a whole lot of speculation about how much religion and everything else played into it. But the interesting thing about college students is to remember back in 1960, 18 year olds didn't have a vote. So this was an older group, 21 and over. Uh, the campuses back then were not very diverse. So it was, uh, and it, so it was mainly middle-class and upper-middle-income white kids who Nixon really appealed, his stability kind of appealed to the middle class. So although there were a lot of us that were Kennedy supporters, now I was not at OSU at the time, I was still in high school, there were a lot of students that were, but there were also a lot of students that were Nixon supporters. Now that would change over the decade, but at, at least at the beginning of the decade, Richard Nixon had strong support and he continued to have strong support at Ohio State because of his appeal to middle-class people, particularly middle-class and upper-middle-class white people. And then before like the large scale of like being Catholic kind of came into the picture, I would say, or at least more of that influence, I wouldn't hit the religion aspect, but I would say mostly military families as well, too. A lot of people that want like a strong military, more focused on military and their public speeches as well, too. Nixon had a lot of that when he was giving his debates versus Kennedy he was talking more about the military. But Kennedy was very aggressive about that as well. So I think that cut both ways. I think where the Catholic issue came in is that in some states that had big urban Catholic populations, Nixon or Kennedy did very well. Ohio had had a Catholic population somewhat in the urban areas, like in Cleveland and in Cincinnati, but in the rural areas, they didn't. And that there are a lot of people that speculate that may have played into why Ohio turned out the way it did. Pennsylvania, on the other hand, I think went for Kennedy, and you had huge Catholic populations in Philadelphia and in Pittsburgh. Now, when it came to the talkings of the Vietnam War, talking about, I mean, it was kind of left to see what Kennedy was going to do if he was going to pull out of Vietnam or not. But Johnson seems to be the one that gets most of the damage control when it comes to Vietnam War. You know, everyone says that's Johnson's problem, a lot of issues that came with that. I mean, were the, were the college university in the beginning, were they understanding what was going on with the Vietnam, Vietnam War? Were there protests at all, or did that come later? No, this is fascinating. Um, in the early stages of the war, like right after the Gulf of Tonkin incident, when uh, Lyndon Johnson then sent, you know, started the Rolling Thunder bombing campaign and so forth, he had strong support on campus, including from the faculty. They felt, now, we were not being told a lot of things, but they were felt it was the right thing to do. Now, as the war went on and ground troops got involved and it got more controversial, that support eroded. There's a fascinating, there was a fascinating uh, vote sponsored in the spring of 1968 by I think Sperry Rand Corporation, which then made computers and Time Magazine on college campuses and it polled college students on their views on the Vietnam War. 
and they did a polling site at Ohio State. This is now in the spring of 1968. So this is after Tet, and the war is becoming somewhat unpopular, or in fact, becoming very unpopular. And it shows you, you know, everybody pictures uh, the college students as kind of being monolithic, and they weren't. They weren't as radical as some people felt or as conservative as others felt. And it's interesting the way the vote played out on the Vietnam War. So the questions were something like, you think we should escalate, stay the course, gradually withdraw, or pull out immediately? Okay, so those are the four options. About 15% of the students voted for the pull out immediately. About 15% voted for the escalate. Less than 5% voted for continuing the current course. That shows how unhappy people were with Lyndon Johnson. But the majority, 60%, supported pulling out, but on a gradual basis, which of course is eventually what happened. I thought that was kind of interesting because it reflected sort of where the country was at the time. With Lyndon Johnson, his such support in the beginning compared to later on when people kind of started losing faith in him a little bit or just kind of approval of him. I mean, was did he know that? Like, did Johnson understand that if he if he starts off the thing thinking that college kids are the future, much like you see a lot of speeches that happen at college campuses as well, too. I mean, I wonder if he was still keeping in the loop of what the college kids were thinking about. I would think with the most protests and there's underground press that obviously started to happen. There's a fake magazine that was created called the rational observer which was from the fbi that was put on a college campus and it was just anti anti vietnam so it was like vietnam war is good we're actually doing great over there and it was just countering some of the criticism of what was going on so i started to wonder when the people kind of had a different opinion of their government or maybe try to look into more of what was not being said i mean i think a lot of people were kind of shocked and kind of taken back by the vietnam war but it didn't start out that way i mean for what we were being told it seemed like it was a good reason to be over there and part of it was there was a term we had back then called the credibility gap and what it meant is that no, people stopped believing what the government was saying because they kept saying the war is going well and it didn't seem to be. It was still a stalemate on the ground. Casualties. There's a lot of mythology about the Tet Offensive, which occurred in January of 1968. And the mythology is somehow that people supported the war before the Tet Offensive, that it was really a military defeat for Vietnam, for North Vietnam, but a political victory. And that's when support eroded. In fact, if you view if, if you view what most historians have done and check the polling across the country on support of the Vietnam War, it started to erode after the troop after we sent in ground troops and the casualties started to mount up, and the war didn't seem to come to an end. What the Tet Offensive did is kind of reinforce in everybody's mind that the war was a stalemate, not that we were winning or we were losing but that we couldn't affect the outcome and it just more young men were dying. And that kind of got Lyndon Johnson in a box until it looked like he was gonna pull out a peace deal. Remember right at the right before the election and Humphreys uh, standing then shot up, but of course that didn't happen. So- um, I mean, even if you agree pulling out, it would have to be a stalemate if you know you can't win. I mean, if it looks like you lose, it's. I would say I would agree with the political part of that. I mean, the other country you're going to go is like, that's what happened. You guys lost that. And then as the American public as well, too, as much as they want it out, do you, has America ever accepted the loss factor of thing? That's really hard to do. That's a credibility thing. That's a big issue. Even if it's what the people want, it does not look good. And a lot of people back then were patriots as much as they are patriots today as well, too. Well, the interesting thing is that, uh, whether you agree with Nixon or not, 
the political strategy that he developed of how he explained what he was going to do was pretty sophisticated. He said, we'll have peace with honor. So we will gradually withdraw, but not in a way that causes dishonor to the country, which didn't quite turn out that way. But for getting through the 1972 election, it did. Um, the other political imperative to think about that affected Lyndon Johnson a lot, because remember, he was a senator before he was vice president. And he was a senator during the Truman administration when uh, Truman was accused of, quote, losing China when the communist Chinese were able to capture that. And in the back of his mind, politically, he didn't want to be blamed for losing Vietnam. Therefore, he stayed in there. And I think there was an element of that even in the Kennedy administration. There's a lot of back and forth about whether Kennedy would have pulled out or not. But I think the political imperative of not wanting to lose the war affected the president a lot. The problem is for people, young men that were subject to being drafted, and I was one of them, to be sent over there to be put in harm's way because the president didn't want to be the first president to lose a war it doesn't seem to me to be the right reason to sacrifice your life. Yeah, agreed. Um, how big of an issue was civil rights to Lyndon Johnson's campaign? I know he did a lot for civil rights. Um, whether you want to agree that he continued on with Kennedy's ideas of what was going on with civil rights, I think he probably maintained a lot of that course as well, too. But I mean, how was the campuses accepting that? I've seen like footage of stuff like that, and I see how difficult it was for them to college students that were black or African-American to go onto college campuses. I just wonder if that might have turned the tide on Johnson as well, too, when it came to people accepting it. I don't know if they were open back then. I have to think of the mindset, and I, that's a hard thing to do when we're almost like 60 years past that. Um, again, it's, it's you have to be careful. You can't make blanket statements about everybody, but I think in general – there was a lot of support on campus from both students and faculty for the Civil Rights Bill and the Voting Rights Act. And in fact, I have a wonderful picture in my book of students putting postcards into a mailbox, and the postcards are lobbying Ohio Senator Frank Lauschie to vote for the Civil Rights Bill because he was one of the holdouts against it. He was a Democrat, didn't want to vote for it. So there was a big lobbying campaign on campus, and whether that made a difference or not, Lauschie did vote for the Civil Rights Bill. So there was a lot of support. I think where the backlash came is after the, the Civil Rights Bill passed and the Voting Rights Bill passed, I think a lot of white people assumed, well, everything's fine. And then you had the riots that broke out in Watts and elsewhere that showed there was still a lot of economic discrimination and that kind of thing that hadn't been addressed. Meanwhile, the level of violence rose, especially with the assassin. And I was on campus when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I remember the ugliness it kind of let out. So for black people, it was a white man that killed a black man who advocated nonviolence. So that got them upset. For white people, there were Stokely Carmichael and Rat Brown, these other younger black leaders that were much more militant, talked about using guns. So that got them spooked. So you had racial divisions, which became a lot more intense then uh, as the decade went on. And and Richard Nixon, both as a candidate and president, kind of played off that to a degree. The insecurity, particularly of the white middle class, who saw violence from black people as a threat. How did Nixon do damage control? I mean, you have to think if you have campuses already being divided on issues like that as well, too, protests, riots, violence is going to break out. I mean, did he give public speeches about it? Did he go onto these campuses much like he was might have done in the beginning when he was running for campaign or just visiting some of these campuses? Well, as a candidate in 1968, he, he was a big, one of his big themes was law and order, that Johnson and the liberals had let things get out of control. 
and that uh, protesters were who, who he argued represented only a minority of Americans uh, were out of control. And so they advocated cracking down on on campus protests. Really? Um, in, in fact, you know, the 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 big climax to all that were the shootings at Kent State by Ohio National Guardsmen. And Nixon originally was not very sympathetic to the students. You know, he talked about bums on campus and, and that kind of thing. And that that kind of uh, got him on the opposite side of uh, college students. There was a uh, shooting on like on Kent. What what'd you say? You said there was a I, I had never heard of that. Okay. Well, this was OK. This is in the spring of 1970. And remember, on April 30th, President Nixon went on national TV and announced, even though he'd been arguing that he was withdrawing troops from Vietnam, that he was sending U.S. and South Vietnamese forces across the border into Cambodia. He said he was doing it to, um, to disrupt enemy supplies and sanctuaries in that area because American troops had not been allowed there under the Johnson administration. But a lot of the people that were opposed to the war saw that as an expansion of the war, which in a way it was. Uh, and Cambodia went in, went through a whole bunch of rough stuff. So protests erupted all across campuses, including in Ohio and including in Ohio State and at Kent State. Now, Ohio State had already had some tough uh, protests that occurred, not because of Vietnam, but because of some local issues on campus. Uh, and National Guard was already at Ohio State. But at Kent State, uh, Governor Rhodes, the Ohio, Ohio's governor, sent the National Guard into Kent State because there had been some rioting and destruction of property on Friday night and then Saturday night. So Nixon announced the Cambodian invasion on Thursday. On Friday night in Kent, there was some uh, destruction of property downtown. And I think on Saturday, someone, we still don't know who, set fire to the ROTC building on the Kent campus. And when the firemen came to put out the fire, uh, some of the people in the in the crowd threw rocks and bricks at them. And that's when the National Guard was called in, the Ohio National Guard was called in. They issued a martial law order on the campus. You couldn't have demonstrations and all that. Apparently, it wasn't very clear what you could do and what you couldn't do. And there were some student demonstrations on that Monday. That would be Monday, May 4th. Around noon, there was a rally on campus. And the, the circumstances that led to the shooting are still under debate, but the bottom line was it was a crowd that was fairly peaceful. And for some reason, the National Guard turned and fired into the crowd with military rifles, killed four and wounded 13. And it was a major, just a shock to the whole country and the whole, and college campuses across the country uh, students protest. They felt like there was a target on their back just because they opposed the administration. So it was an ugly, ugly incident. Do you think it was a zero tolerance for any of that type of backlash from certain college kids? I mean, even though they might be the future, we don't necessarily get looked at from a younger generation standpoint. We don't necessarily get looked at as the ones that uh, can rival authority in such a way. I mean, obviously we do, but when it comes to opinion and where you value your information coming from, most of the time you expect it from your elders, not someone that's from a younger generation. Well, the interesting thing is that they that some reporters went out and talked to residents of Kent after the shootings. And by and large, the residents of Kent supported the National Guard. Then Newsweek did a poll 
of Americans in general. And although while college students were really outraged because they felt like you know, it was aimed at them, the majority of the Amer American public felt Nixon was doing the right, and Governor Rhodes did the right thing in calling the National Guard in. And, and the, the phrase that was popular at the time was, they should have shot more of them. It was an awful, ugly time. Did this bring fear into anybody wanting to attend classes or going back to the university if there's these types of issues that are going on there? I mean, I, if that sparks up debates around other universities as well, too, but it seems like a lot of fluctuation with one university. Oh, absolutely. In fact, one of the students that was killed was uh, uh, a young woman from Youngstown who was doing nothing more provocative than walking to class. And her father had been a refugee from Germany from a concentration camp. Can you imagine that? Being a refugee from Nazi Germany, bringing your daughter up to be a good person who is not a protester and all she's doing is walking to class and she gets shot in the back. It was ugly. Did, did it start with giant protests like the Vietnam War and things of that sort? I mean, did they focus more on smaller issues as well too? I mean, a lot of civilian stuff as well too, like when it came to just what was going on in Ohio in general, I feel like you would work by your state before you sort of hit the major giant protests. No, the, the first uh, anti-war protest at Ohio State occurred in 1965. And it was like two or three people. Just two and three? Yeah. And, the, and in fact, um, one of the, one of those protests that was on Veterans Day, and some of the people in the crowd yelled at the protesters for speaking against the government on Veterans Day. So, and in fact, in 1965, there was a blood drive on campus to support the troops, and it, it, it uh, got a, a tremendous amount of support and amount of blood donated. Uh, but over time, again, as we mentioned, support for the war eroded and criticism of the war grew. Now, having said that, there were protests at Ohio State against the war, but they were by and large peaceful. There were only a handful. There were a handful of arrests in the, in the spring of 1968 because some of the protesters tried to block the route to military recruiters. And they were, they were arrested and, and put in jail and it settled down. In fact, it got so calm at Ohio State that for the graduation ceremony, in 1969, so this would have been June of 1969, President Nixon was invited to give the graduation address. It turned out he couldn't come because he was flying to Guam to meet with President Tu to announce troop withdrawals. So they decided to send Vice President Agnew instead. And he was a very divisive figure at the time. He did show up, they did have graduation, they did have heavy security. There were a handful of protests, but by and large, Agnew was treated politely when he came to Ohio State. When it came to the amount of presidents that, or Nixon, Johnson, that could have visited that campus at any point, but just probably felt deterred because of the protests that they were hearing from, I mean, was media reporting it kind of in a different way than what was actually happening at that campus? Like, I'm looking for you right now to give me information because you experienced that. Yeah. If I look up an article about it, it might not be the same thing of what you're saying because media was reporting a lot of different things that was more government based rather than talking about protests in a positive way. I mean, it's easier to say a bunch of kids are being rowdy at a university, so it makes it sound dangerous rather than what was actually going on there. Well, it's not what you think. And there's some unexpected. Let me start. The, to me, one of the ultimate ironies was during the 1960 election, President Kennedy, Kennedy came to Columbus, but he did not come to campus. 
but he did send Lyndon Johnson. He gave a speech out, an outdoor speech in September to a crowd of a couple hundred, and it was recorded. And one of the things he said to students then was it was important that they vote because what government did affected their lives. And of course, the irony of that statement was when President, when Vice President Johnson became president and made the decision to escalate the war in Vietnam and therefore uh, up draft calls, a lot of college students ended up being affected by that. But President Johnson was so unpopular on college campuses by the spring of 1968 that he wouldn't he wouldn't go to any major campus. So the next visit of any kind was the visit by Vice President Agnew that I mentioned in the in the spring of 1969. The irony, a second irony, is that so the campus appeared to be quiet in the 68-69 school year in part because the administration really cracked down on protests. The small protests that there were, they went after them, they threw the kids in jail and that kind of thing. But the, the issues were simmering below the surface. And I found a letter in the archives from a couple faculty members who worked on what they called the Center for Disaster Recovery. It's what we would call today first responder training. And they wrote a letter to the dean of students and they copied the rest of the administration. They said, because of our work, we're out and about a lot in Ohio communities. And what we're finding is that the university has alienated itself from two groups of people. One is African-Americans because the university had uh, thrown, a number of the, thrown a number of the leaders of the black civil rights movement out of school because they had done a takeover, sort of a takeover of the administration building. So what these two professors said is that the black community is really upset with the university because they felt you've treated black protesters more severely than white protesters. And it's not only the more younger, more radical people, but even the older, more conservative religious leaders. So you've got the black community upset with the university. They said the other group that's upset are the younger anti-war people because they feel the university has been too, has not allowed protests to the degree they should. Well, the letter was never responded to and never addressed. And what they said is you ought to reach out to these people because if they ever get together, they could close the place down, All right? So the university did nothing. They continued their hard line, which was supported by the state, by the board of trustees. We cracked down on protesters, zero tolerance for this stuff. And it blew up in the spring of 1970. And um, it occurred over, it was a coalition of the, African-American people called Afro-Am and some of the white anti-protest people. And that's what resulted in the big protests in Ohio State that literally involved thousands of people. How difficult was for the university to be able to kind of flow and change some of these restrictions as well, too, when it came to protests, cracking down on protests? I mean, were they understanding that it was like there's a need and a kind of a want, but also what the right way to do it was? Well, they were initially, but uh, two things kind of changed the dynamics. In the spring of 1968, everything got a little more tense, but there was also a takeover by student protesters of the administration building at Columbia. Uh, in fact, you know that the movie in the book, The Strawberry Statement, is based on, on that. And it got a lot of publicity. It scared a lot of people. And when a group of Black students threatened to take over the administration building at Ohio State, the university administration thought Columbia really cracked down and it ended up um, not, only, not only throwing those students out of school, 
but they got the 10 leaders and they brought them up on kidnapping charges. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, because they made a couple of administrators, the vice president for business and finance, who the police reported to and they had an issue with, they told him he couldn't leave his office. He had to stay there for a couple hours. Now, this happened all in a period of one day. There were no weapons involved. And the students voluntarily left on their own after they decided, you know, we're kind of in a box. And there was some mediation from black pastors and so forth. So the incident ended without much property damage and with no things like that. But the university was so paranoid that they they really threw the book at these students. Now, the kidnapping charges were never uh, they weren't they were never able to make them stick. So to the white people that showed well the justice system worked. The black people said, no, I meant those charges never should have been provided anyway. So the combination of the assassination of Martin Luther King and the stuff that was going on in the country and this incident with the administration building in the spring of 68 really hardened uh, opposing lines. The other pressure he had was even if, if the administration, and there were hawks and doves within the administration, some people wanted to crack down, some that wanted to take an easier, you know, more conciliatory place. They really didn't have the flexibility. The Board of Trustees in Ohio State, which was appointed by the governor, was very conservative and didn't want to give any negotiating with uh, protesters or that kind of thing. The governor was very much a law and order person. And Lyndon Johnson was somewhat. And then when President Nixon took over, he was even more so. So the university administration felt it didn't have the flexibility to deal with this in any way other than cracking down. So the particular incident I mentioned, and this is fascinating, the way the big riots started, it's usually some spark. So OSU had been, as I mentioned, been quiet since the spring of 1968, relatively. There had been protests, but they'd all been peaceful. No one had been arrested. So the two groups that were upset with the university administration, Afro-Am, as a result of the way those protesters were treated in the spring of 68, and then the anti-war people who were also upset with protesters that were thrown in jail for protesting the recruiters, got together and decided to call a student strike for the spring of 1970, okay? Now, the irony of this is other protest groups, the Students for a Democratic Society being one of them, had tried to organize a student strike at OSU in the spring of 1967 and failed, in the spring of 1968 and failed, and in the spring of 1969 and failed due to lack of interest of the students. In the spring of 1970, because the black students and the anti-war people had gotten well organized, put it together, they got a pretty good crowd of several thousand people out on the Oval to support the strike. Now, what does it mean when you have a student strike? This is a good question. Well, it means you don't go to class. And it was a nice spring day. So a lot of people don't go to class anyway. It started out very peaceful. The organizers of the protest had walkie talkies and armbands and try, they didn't physically disrupt any of the students who did want to go to class or, and make any threats or anything. They just made that, themselves noticeable. Yeah, exactly. They just wanted to make their point. In fact, it was so quiet that President Fawcett, who was the president at the time, left campus because he wanted to go to the swearing-in of the former provost up at Cornell. He left, his plane left the, the uh, tarmac at about three in the afternoon. So he had a quiet afternoon so far. The protest started at noon. It's now 3.30. 
And a group of protesters, a mix of primarily students, but some non-students, decided they would take the protest further and sat down in the middle of the intersection at 11th and Neal, which is right at the corner of the university. And there were maybe 30 or 40 of them. And if you look at pictures, and I interviewed some of the people who were there, they were blocking traffic, but it was a fairly peaceful thing. And there were other ways to get around. But the hawks in the university administration, the president wasn't there, were trying to figure out what to do. And they decided we need to clear the intersection. We can't let these protesters disrupt traffic. So they started with some plainclothes highway patrolmen who happened to be, there's a whole sub-issue of plainclothes and intelligence agents and provocateurs. CIA on campus, I'm they, telling they you, man. There were. Uh, FBI was involved, there were informants, all this kind of thing. Anyway, the, there were about 10 plainclothes highway patrol people tried to get the students to move out of the street. They wouldn't do it, and there was some pushing and shoving. So the plainclothes highway patrol people called for backup. And in fact, because there had been rumors of riots and protests, there were about 100 highway patrol on campus ready to come in. They were not in riot gear, so nobody thought there was going to be a riot. They were in regular patrol uniforms, you know, with the billy clubs and all that, but they weren't in riot gear. So they come, and they try to, to move the people out of the street, and they wouldn't. Meanwhile, of course, this is a classic Ohio State event. So there are about 30 or 40 people doing something, sitting in the street, but classes change. And all of a sudden, there's a crowd of two or 3,000 people standing on the corner watching all this. But it's a peaceful crowd, by large. Well, somebody in the crowd starts throwing rocks and bottles at the highway patrol. We're not in riot gear. Now, I've had people that were organizers of the strike say it was undercover Columbus police that were throwing the rocks and bottles because they recognized some of them. But whatever happened, there were a handful of people doing that. So the highway patrol called for backup from the Columbus police. Okay? Now, picture this. 60 police cars blowing down High Street, the main thoroughfare between downtown and campus, and coming into campus and unloading about 200 Columbus police officers in full riot gear. So they got, and there had been tension between the Columbus police and the campus protesters anyway through, throughout the, the 60s. So they come in and their reaction is there are people throwing rocks and bottles. So they start firing tear gas and charge into the crowd. Well, that clears the street, but what happens is not only do the protesters split, but the, all the spectators around there to get away from the tear gas charge up the, up the street away from the intersection. And they're going past, or if, if you're familiar with the Ohio State uh, campus on 11th Avenue, there's a series of about a dozen high-rise dormitories, each of which houses maybe 500 students. So the police are not only shooting tear gas at the people that are leaving the the intersection, they're shooting tear gas into the windows of the door. Well, what does that do? Calls everybody to go outside. They come out and they're pissed off. The police chase this huge, now a huge crowd up through the center of campus, across High Street, into the fraternity and sorority area. Now, the Greeks, by and large, tend to be more conservative than other people, but the police start shooting. I had a number of eyewitnesses tell me this tear gas into the fraternity and sorority house. Same thing, makes them, you know, it's like stirring up a hornet's nest. Yeah. So they come out and it gets so out of control. By now, President Fawcett has flown back to campus. It's in the evening. 
everything seems to be out of control. There's thousands of people in the street. There's tear gas everywhere. So they asked the governor to send in the National Guard to preserve order. And that's when they, okay. No, but well, the National Guard comes in and they actually cleared High Street and things settled down the next morning, although it was kind of tense, all right? I, I interviewed students that were involved at the time. I was not on campus at the time. I was in the army in Germany, but I talked to students that were there. And they said in their view, they did not like the Columbus police, but they felt the National Guard were college students just like they were. And initially, the relationship between the students and the National Guardsmen wasn't horrible. You know, the campus was tense, but it was under control. And th now this is on Friday. Okay, so the the uh, the blocking of Neil and Eleven occurred on Wednesday afternoon. The National Guard was called in Wednesday night about midnight. Thursday was a little tense, but the National Guard had succeeded in restoring some degree of order. By Friday, with the weekend coming, a lot of students are going home. Ohio State had a lot of commuters back then. And they're thinking of pulling the National Guard out. Okay, that's how quiet it got. Well, while it was quiet at OSU after a big eruption, that's when Kent State blew up. And then in the on the afternoon of May 4th is when the four students were killed and 13 wounded. Well, word of that came down to Ohio State. There were still protests, but they had been somewhat peaceful. But the original, you know, and you didn't have the internet back then. And the initial news reports, which are always wrong, said that both students and National Guardsmen were killed at Kent State. So now you've got at OSU a group of protests. And this, this is the irony or the, the timing of this. There's a award ceremony going on for the ROTC detachment, the Army ROTC detachment at Ohio State on the athletic fields near the hospital. Ohio State at that time had the largest ROTC, Army ROTC contingent in the country. This is several hundred ROTC cadets. There's a group of protesters up on the Oval who were protesting, you know, everything in general that heard then about the Kent State shootings and it heard students had been killed. So they decided to march on the ROTC ceremony down near the hospital. The so that- Chain reaction. Hospital. Yep. So the university hears about it and then they call for more National Guard support. So National Guard troops are trucked down there with loaded rifles, just like they were at Kent State to keep order. And you had the potential for a horrible blow up. And what happened, and I, I never could find out exactly who did this, but some of the leaders from the protesters talked to the ROTC commander and they said, you know, this is after what happened at Kent State, this is really serious. Let's see if we can agree on how we're going to deal with this. And what they agreed to, as long as the protesters did not make physical contact with the ROTC cadets, they could protest and the ceremony would go on. And I've got pictures and somewhere in the book of of uh, protesters infiltrating the ROTC ranks, but the ROTC soldiers keeping their discipline, the National Guard people keeping their discipline, the protesters keeping their discipline, and no one was hurt, injured, or arrested on, in that particular afternoon. That's amazing. So really dodged the bullet there. But the next day, so this would have been May 5th, relations between the protesters and the National Guard now in the Ohio State campus are getting tense because of what happened at Kent. And so there's throwing rocks and bottles, the National Guard's throwing tear gas, 
And President Fawcett, I think wisely on May 6, decided to close the university down and send everybody home. Um, but boy, it was a tense, tense time. The university reopened two weeks later and they managed to keep enough order that the that, uh, graduation could take place under heavy security and uh, the university move on. But it was a very tense period. Did you do you believe any of those people that said they were agent provocateurs that were throwing those rocks in the beginning? I certainly think it's possible. Stuff that's come out since then. Uh, there were a lot of congressional hearings on the role of undercover police generally in the country, and they found a lot of abuse. That, uh, in fact, at Kent State, there was a theory that the first shot was fired by an informant that was on the payroll of the National Guard, not by anybody else. Now, that, that's based on tape-recorded evidence, and nobody can prove it or not. But uh, I certainly think it's possible. I think it's also possible there were there were people either students or non-students on the protest side, it wasn't the majority, but felt that their needs would be advanced if they could create a confrontation. I also had an interesting, this is the, the, the gentleman has unfortunately passed away, but I was able to speak with him before he did. I talked with the gentleman who was the commander of the National Guard unit that was called to Ohio State that evening, the evening of uh, April 30th. He was in a at a soccer match in Gahanna, watching his daughter when he when someone they found him and said you have to get on campus they, the National Guard's been called up, so he told me he he got his soldiers, and uh, before he put them out on line because Ohio National Guard then had a, a were were under orders when they went into a riot situation to have loaded weapons which I think is stupid but that's what they did. But his interpretation of loaded weapons was that, yeah, they could put the magazine in the M1 rifle, but they were not the chamber around, which would be the same. So you couldn't just, you had to leave the safety on, so you couldn't just fire away. And he said, he told his non-commissioned sergeants and his lieutenants to check every man's rifle so that no one had a rifle with a round chambered in it, because he was afraid some hothead or somebody would panic and it would start a thing. So they were under very tight, that National Guard unit was under very tight control. And so he had very few injuries and no deaths at Ohio State. The National Guard at Kent State was under a different commander and they were very aggressive. And as, as talked about earlier, ended up opening fire on an unarmed crowd. So you had very different players in two different places that had two different outcomes. How do you solve something like that when it's conflicting strategies, not just in the National Guard, different directors, but when you look at things like the, the mindset of the kids on college campuses that want to protest, and then also the muscling down techniques of the government as well, too, like just for show, like show up there, line up side by side. It doesn't need to be you don't need to do anything to them. Just give a presence there and it'll maybe deter some protesters from doing that. You can't have people in the middle of the street, whether it's peaceful or not. I mean, it shuts down the rules of society when it comes to how things work. And the government doesn't like that aspect of things. Now, I'm not anti-government, but I've read the church committee report and a lot of that stuff in there. I don't put the age of provocateurs above anything at this point because it just it seemed like a common strategy back then. And it's a I mean, it's a bad but good strategy. It's effective in the fact that you can get rid of the problem quicker, but it's horrible if something goes terribly wrong and someone gets killed. 
But reading through that church committee report has just kind of opened up the doors for me to believe like the government could go on college campuses. CIA's active on college campuses. I had no idea about that. That's just mind blowing. It's something you get out of like a Hollywood movie. But so many of my friends, when I uh, did an episode on it, just were like, what? That's real? And I was like, yeah, and I'll show you the document where they talk about it too. And I'm like, is that still going on? I have no clue, but I've had people on that says it is a college professor or something like that, whether it's research or whatever, to me, it just opens up the door of like, it's interesting. The mindsets that go on where diving through history, I had to kind of examine it through other lenses of things that came later, whether it was COINTELPRO with the Black Panther Party or just any of those types of tactics with the FBI and the CIA, where you just start questioning things of like, are we remembering history as like these crazy kids on college campuses? Are they really upset about something? And then they were kind of taken down in an aspect of they seem like they were a problem. Well, let me mention two things. One is COINTELPRO was active on the OSU campus. How do I know? I found a faculty member pointed me towards declassified records, that they were there and they were trying to undercut the students for democratic society by sending news clips to their parents, posting phony meeting messages so people would show up at a meeting. So they were there doing that stuff. They did that with uh, the one of the things they did, which I consider a low gut punch, is they messaged the Black Panther Party's wives and said that your husbands are sleeping around with teenagers. And that's in the church committee report. And it's like it, right below that is talking about where they would have their board meetings at these hotel rooms. They would find a tenant's name and then they would write a fake letter and then submit it to whoever. So then people would go in there and be like, hey, you can't have this meeting here and trying to tear them from having Which To me, I'm like, it's so strategic and it's just really kind of like, I mean, messaging someone's wife is terrible and saying that they're sleeping around with teenagers. I saw that. I was like, there's no way that's something like a 14 year old spreads a rumor around in high school. Well, paranoia was pretty uh, rampant there. But let me, here's an interesting thing. So after the university was closed, there were a number of assessments done as to whether we did the right thing or not by the university administration. I was able to access those in the university archives and through interviews. And I found out there was an, uh, an admission that they used, they overused tear gas. And what the tear gas did is get a lot of fence sitters off the fence and against the police because they'd been sitting in the room doing nothing. All of a sudden, the tear gas canister flows in there. And um, so the, when the campus reopened, they did three things differently, which shows how, they, how I think they learned from dealing with protests. One of the things that went back and forth is how much outside agitators were involved. And I was able to get a hold of the arrest records and find out that the leaders of the protests were registered OSU students. Okay, so the, the thing there was a bunch of outside agitators that started this is incorrect. But what I also found out from the arrest records that about half of the, there were 600 and some people arrested during the protests at Ohio State. Of them, about half of them were students. So the question is who were the other half? Columbus residents that were either high school students, gang members, uh, voyeurs, assorted troublemakers. So you had some local, Outside. So when the university reopened two weeks later, they adopted a policy. They said instead of having the National Guard on the campus chasing protesters, we'll use the National Guard to ring the campus. And to get on campus, you needed to show a student ID. So that way they kept outside people out. But they didn't use the National Guard to chase protesters. The other thing they decided is that. Um, you know, those protesters, they have a lot of support. The faculty got involved and said, you know, we can't let this continue. 
we think you need to talk to the students and start negotiating with them about making some changes on this campus about the things that they're upset about. And so they got the university to do that and they sat down, they started to talk and the administration promised that they would address the student demands in the fall. And they did come up with, they didn't accept all of them. They did some of them, but the most fascinating one, this shows how you use or misuse force. A group, another group of protesters after the university reopened, sat down again at the corner of Neil and 11. And clearly what they were trying to do is provoke a police response to start this all over again. This time with the university administration, the National Guard and the Columbus police decided to do is we will ignore those students sitting in the street. And if you ignore them long enough, there won't be a crowd, they'll go away and that's exactly what happened. So had they done that the first time, you might've had a different outcome. And I, I interviewed people, there was a faculty committee that uh, looked at the, at the riots and they said, one of their conclusions was that a lot of the students who were just moderates or fence sitters weren't radical, got, came off the fence after they'd been tear gassed and were really upset with the Columbus police. And there are a number of polls and stuff done afterwards. This is, this is also interesting on who the students trusted or didn't trust. Okay, these were scientific polls done by faculty of OSU students. And among the people that were, the strike leaders were sort of trusted, maybe half and half, but a lot of the students said, we support what the strike leaders are advocating, but we don't like their methods. The traditional student leaders, you know, the student government body president and that got a little more support. The people that got the most were the most trusted were the faculty, interesting, but not surprising. The guess were who was least trusted, Columbus police and the administration. Both I, of can, them. I, I believe the administration, I feel like it's a giant, whether you're looking at it from the side of like, you don't like the protesters or you enjoy the protesters. It's just a lot of news and a lot going on on your campus. Like that's a big issue. And there were critics. President Fawcett was regarded as a competent administrator, but not someone who was out communicating with students that uh, was one. There was a big protest at the University of Indiana, and I think the, the president and the provost went and talked to the protesters. And as a result, they decided to have a big meeting and they had they worked their differences out peacefully. Now there were other places in Ohio, in Ohio University, for example where the president went out and tried to reason with the protesters. They started throwing stuff at him and they had to close the campus down. So every campus was a little different. But I think in OSU's case, the, the consensus of both um, the administration, law enforcement, other experts was that the university and law enforcement overreacted to the protests at the corner of Neal and 11th. And as a result, created this big brouhaha that uh, took a long time to work through. Well, Bill, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on, on my show about this. I appreciate the work you've done too. I mean, like I said, my generation, it's hard. There's a lot about history. I didn't realize how complicated it really was when it went into specifics on things, but I appreciate the work that you've done and interviews that you've done as well too, and giving me the time to learn a little bit more as well. Is there a place where people can find your links? Um, yeah, let me see. Twitter, uh, anything? Yeah, well, my my books are all on Amazon with a uh, author's page, and also the Ohio State University Press. Uh, probably the the best place to find it, and then also WOSU TV 
did a, a visual history of the 1970 riots. And uh, that is archived in there. You can go on WSU and look at local programming and you can pull it up. I think uh, it's, it's called OSU and the Vietnam War or something like that. So there are a number of different. How difficult was it for you to go through those archives and be able to find some of those documentation on things? Well, it took a lot of, of work, but it to me, it was a labor of love because I, I just found it fascinating because I had certain things I believed I thought were true and I turned out they were not to see the documents right in front of you. It was also interesting. I think the administration sanitized some of the, some documents I expected to find in that period I didn't find, you know, after action reports and so forth. And I think they might've been sanitized. I believe it. I've been through 64,000 documents related to the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. I can tell you there's some stuff, there's there's riff numbers that don't exist, but they're labeled there. You know what else was, was really a lot of fascinating was I was able to look up a lot of the student leaders of the uh, riots and talk to them about what happened to them and how they thought about it now and everything. And I, and I, actually, I also found a retired Columbus policeman that talked to me and he was on the Red Squad and he said his job was to go on campus and sit in classrooms, not to see what the faculty was saying, but to find out what the SDS and some of the others were, were planning. Did, so, you ever, did you ever hear the name Joyon West? No. Uh -uh. Do you ever hear the name Sidney Gottlieb? Boy, that sounds vaguely familiar from somewhere. Yeah. What, what, what were they? They're MK Ultra doctors. Uh, one of them was on a campus, and I don't remember, I think it was Ohio. It says in one of the documents. I don't know if it was Joyon West or not, but. I'm I'm so curious. I'm like, because if you look in, I, I'm a big interest in MK Ultra, but they used over 44 college universities. And I saw it and I was like, oh God, I went to one of these colleges. And I was just like, you're looking at it. You're like, that's crazy. I mean, I've talked to people with campus, CIA on campus, but Spy Schools is another book by Daniel Golden. And he talked about interviewing a Yale professor that was talking about he was working for the CIA, just research wise, but it was something like invisibility. And I'm like, what the hell are we, this is a movie. What are we talking about invisibility? Probably not getting anything done, but he threw it into his book. And it was just like, really like really rough ideas and stuff on it. And I'm like, well, I mean, if the CIA reached out to him i don't know what the heck's going on to me it's just it just sparks up a bigger interest because like learning about how ingrained our institutions are as well too you know i like i didn't know this stuff when i went to college and now that i'm learning about it when i got out of it i was like dang i would have asked every single person if they were a cia agent or an fbi agent or just did something i know you can't tell me but real quick like you know like you know behind the school or something if you give me like a thumbs up while you're walking to your car just like all right cool right on <laughs> but bill seriously i'm gonna link all your links in the description i appreciate the time you gave me to talk um, and thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.